the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls so that we can answer Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything on your heart and mind. We'll do the best that we can. I always say we'll do the best that we can. I'll do the best that I can to answer those questions and give you a little bit of help. All you have to do is call us, area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use your free KSLR mobile app. And you have only one button to push and you'll be connected directly to uh, the most beautiful studio producer in San Antonio, Texas, and probably all of Texas. And she'll get you to me. 340-9585. Uh, I want to start today with um, what I consider some good news. Um, uh, I get questions uh, often about different teachers or or public personalities in, in the church or outside of the church uh, for comments. And Joyce Meyer is one of those people that I often get questions about. Joyce Meyer has um, way too much influence on the women uh, in the church, especially here in the United States. Uh, she has been, up to this point, a false teacher, a prosperity teacher, and I've been very direct about saying that, uh, and I catch some heat from saying it sometimes because there are women who really like Joyce Meyer. Uh, today I received uh, an Instagram thing. Now, I don't know what Instagram is, so that's why I said it's an Instagram thing. Uh, I'm not on social media, but somebody wanted me to see it, uh, and it was a, a um, short video of Joyce Meyer walking back her position on faith and prosperity in the Bible. Now, I couldn't believe it, so I listened to it. And here's what she said. She said, uh, I'm grateful for, and I'm paraphrasing as closely as I can, I'm grateful for everything I learned about faith, and I'm grateful for what I learned about prosperity, but I was way out of balance. Nobody can go through life expecting only good things. Nobody can go through life without difficult things. Our common answer, our our, our consistent answer, she said, when uh, somebody was sick is, you just don't have enough faith, or their baby died, you just don't have enough faith. You got fired from your job. You just don't have enough faith. She said, that's not right. And I want to just say publicly, she, I've been critical of her only when people ask questions. I mean, she's not, uh, I'm not one of these guys that's a mission to expose everybody who's a false teacher. But 
publicly when you're critical, you have to also publicly acknowledge. When God's done something in somebody's heart, and they appear to be changing. I think this is one of the problems with a lot of discernment ministries. We attack, we attack, we attack. Now, I don't uh, number myself among the discernment ministries, but but they get attack, 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 uh, and I don't think they pray for the people they're attacking. And uh, I just uh, am thrilled if this is uh, as it appears to be in the video. Uh, it was only a couple of minutes long, so I didn't have greater context. But for a woman who was as vocal as she was, who was as blatant as she was in her heretical teaching, for her to stand up there and say, I was way out of balance, and then for her to say, that's not right, she didn't say, I apologize, but the content of her walk back, I think, was an apology. And for that, I rejoice. If the Lord is doing a, a great work in Joyce Meyer, again, because of her, her significant influence uh, in women in this country, she fills stadiums everywhere she goes, um, this would really be a good thing. And every Christian needs to rejoice when somebody returns to the real family of God, when somebody tries to make right what they've done wrong. That's what real Christianity is all about. So I salute her. Um, I'm going to be a little bit hesitant until I hear more. But right now, you can color me absolutely thrilled. Um, I wish that um, all of the false teachers, especially those of the prosperity, uh, the health and wealth movement, uh, I, uh, I hope that they would do the same thing. Pray for people. God is doing a neat work, and I love it. So I wanted to get that out in the open right at the beginning of the program. 340-9585, and I would love your live calls today. Here's a question from Natalie. What does it mean in Hebrews 2 that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels? Now, Natalie, I'm answering this question. Uh, I think I might have answered it last week, but it came in again, so uh, perhaps you didn't hear it. Uh, all it means is that Jesus was made human. Uh, a little lower than the angels means that he is made in human form. Philippians chapter 2 talks about that. And uh, that's all it is. Now, what the writer of Hebrews, I believe to be the Apostle Paul, is doing is quoting Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. It was a prophecy then, and Hebrews is simply acknowledging this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. So now that means that he was made a man. You know, one of the mysteries of our faith is the Trinity, the triune God. It's also um, a mystery how Jesus could be 100% God and 100% man. We add that up and it's 200% and we know that's not possible. And yet it's true. Jesus is forever the God-man. And if we don't understand the distinction between his humanity and his divinity, Jesus the man died, Jesus who is God never could, but Jesus died as a human for the sins of other humans. And Hebrews is simply rejoicing, acknowledging the superiority of Jesus over everything Jewish. Jesus is better than everything. Why? Because he was made a human. God became a human and died for the sins of sinful humankind. So I hope, Natalie, that answers your question. Here is an anonymous question about a John MacArthur book. Pastor Ron, have you read The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur? And what are your thoughts on Lordship Salvation? Uh, anonymous, I have read it. Now, I have to be honest and tell you it was probably 20 years ago. Um, uh, John MacArthur is a... Um, I think, a gifted Bible teacher. He is reformed, and I, I think that's wrong, and, and he is, um, dare I say, arrogantly reformed. I mean, he's one of those that's always saying, if you believe anything else, you're wrong. Um, and I, I think what the reformers miss, those who, who hold to a Calvinistic biblical view, I think they're missing the love of God. 
John MacArthur and the Lordship Salvation, his whole argument was that if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And he's taking off on uh, Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord and then do not do what I say to do? Uh, In another instance, Jesus said, uh, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And, And I think probably if I was able to sit down and talk with John MacArthur about this, we'd be very, very close uh, in in our perspective. However, the book Lordship Salvation or the Gospel According to Jesus is 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 harsh. It's almost mean spirited at times. And I don't know anybody who hasn't or anybody who has read it who hasn't felt insecure as a result of it. Here's the thing that I think he's trying to communicate. You can't claim to be a real Christian and live like you're not. Now, he goes into minutia in the book, but, but I think it's just simply this. If you're a Christian, you're a different man or a different woman than you used to be. Nobody meets Jesus. John MacArthur's Jesus or my Jesus, same Jesus. Nobody meets my Jesus and stays the same. And there are just too many people who are baptized as babies or they're, they're baptized uh, after an emotional altar call um, they, 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 they hold on to that altar call or that baptism uh, like it was a promise of heaven. Uh, and in fact, their conversion is nothing more than emotions rather than genuine or sincere. Only God knows the heart of the people who come forward. You know, when people come forward, I delight simply because it means at the very least the Holy Spirit's still working in their heart. We, we live in a Catholic culture. We've had some, some people, I still do, by the way, and we, we, we instruct them. But, um, you know, they treat the altar call like a confessional. And, and that's not what is intended. The altar call or, or even the, the, the sacrament of baptism is symbolic of work that's already been done in our heart. And if your heart is sincere, if you've met Jesus, then you're born again. Then you're saved. Now, if you mess up, you come back to God, it proves that you really belong to him, you're still saved. And I think the Lordship Salvation book by John MacArthur, The Gospel According to Jesus, um, would sort of draw, no, somebody who sins and they keep falling in the same sin, uh, they don't know Jesus at all. I don't believe that's the case. So it's not something that I would recommend to others. However, I think for uh, a grounded Christian, uh, as in all of John MacArthur's stuff, there is some um, little treasure nuggets in there, and I think it's it's worth reading for the discerning, grounded, mature Christian. So I hope that helps. Here is a question from Brenda. Brenda says, I'm a Christian and my boyfriend and I are having sex. Why is it wrong if we love each other and are in a committed relationship? Um, Brenda, uh, let me answer the why question first and then I've got a lot more to share with you. Uh, It's wrong because God says it is. It's wrong because God says it is. Only God makes the rules. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, when you can do that or I can do that, then we get to make the rules. But here's the thing I would ask you. You say, I'm a Christian, but we're having sex. I would ask you if I could talk to you face to face and you could see the pain in my face. I'd say, what makes you think you're a Christian? You ask why it's wrong, but obviously you know it's wrong. You know, this is akin to saying, well, uh, what's wrong with stealing if it makes you, gets me what I need? Or what's wrong with lying if it saves me some trouble? Well, it's wrong because God says it's wrong. It doesn't matter how committed the relationship is. Let me also challenge your idea of a committed relationship. Um, The man who would take advantage of you, or you, if you're taking advantage of him, um, that's not love. You say you love each other. I have no doubt you have great emotions for each other, maybe even great passion for each other. But that's not a biblical definition of love. A man who defiles the woman 
who belongs to God doesn't love her. And Brandon, I'd say you have a choice to make. Your boyfriend or Jesus, you can't have both. You simply cannot have both. Now, here's what I would counsel you to do if you came to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I would tell you to both to repent, to separate, I don't mean in the relationship, but separate physically, recommit the relationship to God and see what he's going to do with it. Uh, Paul and I, Brenda, just did a, a marriage conference um, this past weekend um, in North Texas. And, um, you know, we shared our story a little bit. Um, you know, want to introduce ourselves. This is who you're going to be listening to for the next couple of days. And um, Paul and I shared, Paul actually shared that that we were in a relationship uh, there were all kinds of reasons. Her mother was having some mental problems. And in, in my particular case, I'd been disowned by my father because uh, Paula was black. And we loved each other. We knew eventually we were going to get married. So we moved in together. Now, neither one of us were saved, nor did we claim to be saved. But here's what Paula told the men and the women in, in Garland at the conference. She said, we knew it was wrong, even though we weren't saved. You know what you're doing is wrong. That's why you ask, why is it wrong? The choice you have to make now, Brenda, is between obedience and disobedience, between Jesus or a human, a human who is taking advantage of you. If you need any more reason than that to stop having sex, then you really need to examine your heart because that would be an indication, at least to me, that you don't belong to Jesus at all. Remember, and this is for everybody, we're not a Christian because we go to church. We're not a Christian because we say we are. Real Christians, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Real Christians walk like Jesus did. John said in 1 John that if we claim to love Jesus, we have to walk in the light because he is the light. We can't walk in darkness and having sex with somebody you're not married to, Brenda, is walking in darkness. I know people will be praying for you, Brenda. 340-9585. The phones for the last week and a half or so have been really, really slow. We'd love any questions that you have. Uh, here's Anonymous. And this is a statement and then a question. I think congregational voting is the best way to manage a church. Do you agree? Uh, Anonymous, no, no, a thousand times no, I don't agree. Let me give you an example. The only example of congregational voting that we have in the Bible is Moses up on the mountain with God and the congregation deciding what they're going to do and they end up with a golden calf. There's nowhere in Scripture that even suggests that a congregation voting is the right way or even a way None at all. Now, I know we live in the United States of America. We value the democratic principles, and we think that ought to be brought into the church. God says no. The preferred way of managing a church is Jesus calling the shots, the pastor following the vision that Jesus is giving, having godly men surrounding him, to give him direction, to keep some checks and balances in. But there's no hint of a congregation voting for things. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Let me say one other thing, and then we'll get to a phone call I think we've got waiting. Um, you know, I've said many times in this program, Anonymous, we have a free school, uh, a free um, uh, medical clinic, doctor's office, family practice, doctor's office. We have a pediatrician. We've got some really great doctors. We have a house that's free that people can live in, women can live in if they're coming from, from dangerous or, or difficult situations. And all of it's free. All of it's free. If we had a congregation that we had to run those ministries by, 
There's no way we would ever be permitted to do that because none of it ever made sense. Those are visions that God gave us. You do these things. Watch me work. I told Paula last week, uh, I had a really neat time with the Lord in the Word. And and I, I told her, I said, you know, I feel like I'm one of Jesus' disciples. As he's blessing the food, the fish and the loaves, handing them to his disciples and then turning around to feed the multitudes with just, just those tiny little fragments of food. Well, I feel like that's what I'm a part of here at Calvary Chapel. Now, obviously, uh, we're not a huge, huge church. But with so little, God does so much. And none of us ever would have seen that happen had we waited till it made sense or if we waited until a congregation voted to support it. So, Anonymous, that's my perspective. Let's go to Lennon on line one from San Antonio, Texas. Lennon, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. I have a question. Uh, we had a study this Sunday, and somebody mentioned that we all come from, I know as, as Hispanics, we all come from a Catholic background, but he made it a point to say that we were all Catholics at one point. And I kind of had a little bit of an issue with it, and I'd like to know <laughs> what your take is. Yeah, Lennon, you're, you're, you're right to have an issue. Um, you know, Catholic isn't a race. Um, Catholic is a religion. And uh, the fact that, that many Hispanics, uh, 60% of our city uh, is Hispanic, and 60% of our city, not the same 60%, but 60% would describe themselves as Catholic in terms of religion, but 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 that doesn't define us at all. Uh, that's the value, Lennon, of the new birth. Um, the old things are gone and new things pass away. So the fact that you were many uh, Hispanics were were uh, baptized as infants in the Catholic Church didn't do anything to change you or or, or identify you or re-identify you. Um, um, so no, you're not Catholic. Um, you're a born-again believer, and I would be interested to know what his um, motivation was or what point he was trying to drive home might have been, but um, you were right to uh, to question it. Does that help? Uh, it was through historic. He was making like a historical view on how we got Scripture and, and I guess the old government's you know, and that we yeah. we got the Bible through through the Catholic Church, kind of in a sense. Yeah, let me let me let me take the the, the capital C off Catholic, and uh, maybe he's going back to the creeds, uh, where they talk about the Holy Catholic Church. But it's not the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic Lenin means universal. And so in the creeds, the reference to the Catholic Church of the Holy Catholic Church is the Holy Universal Church. And of course, we're only holy holy because we've been washed by the blood of Jesus. So um, uh, if he meant Roman Catholic, he's all he's wrong. If he meant Catholic in the terms of universal, uh, then um, you're you're right. We're all born again and we're part of that Holy Catholic Universal Church. So whichever way he was coming from, he's either right or wrong. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your answer. Thank you, Lynn. Oh, great. Thank you. I appreciate you calling. 340-9585. We're inside three minutes. Daniel, I know we missed your call. If you want to call back, the lines are open, and you can. Uh, 340-9585. Let me take one more question this um, half. Raymond wants to know, is full immersion the only authentic method of baptizing? Raymond, remember now, God doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the inside. He looks at the heart. So he is far less concerned about how we're baptized than he is about our heart being baptized. Uh, From a Jewish construct, circumcision, a circumcised heart is more important than a circumcised body part. And the same thing is true with baptism. We have, uh, we here at Calvary Chapel do uh, believe in full immersion. 
Uh, we put people all the way under. Sometimes I tease with them, Raymond, when I, especially when I know them really well and say, you know, I'm going to hold you under a little bit longer uh, because I know your history. And, and then we have a laugh about it. Uh, but we do believe in full immersion. Uh, that's what we practice here at Calvary Chapel. However, there have been a few times when people are terrified, and I don't mean just afraid, I mean terrified of water. They've had near-drowning experiences, and we'll get them in the water so they can stand up, and we will raise our hands full of water and, and, and uh, pour the water out over their head. And Jesus is so proud of them because they overcame their fear to get in the water in the first place. Um, but but um, immersion is the preferred method. But remember, we don't have to be legalistic about it at all. Let me take a quick story, and then we'll be uh, done with this half of the break or this half of the show, rather. Um, A few years ago, two or three, um, there was a a man who came to watch his family be baptized, and he was in a wheelchair. And um, in full clothes, he came into the water. He had a wheelchair, and uh, I saw the the guys carrying him into the water. I said, do you want us just to spray? He said, no, I want it all. Great thing. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585. We would love your live calls and questions. We'll see you in just two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday program, 340-9585, and we would love your live calls. You know, I was talking with my producer here uh, between, and he reminded me that the guy who got baptized was the father of of uh, a family that's really dear and precious to us. And uh, he wasn't saved and, you know, kind of thought it was all silly. And, uh, you know, he was Catholic by by birth and by infant baptism. Um, but but uh, the, the Spirit of God moved on him, and he was uh, in really, really bad shape physically. And when when he started coming toward me, in the water, being carried by four of our large men. Um, uh, and I thought, no, we can do this. He said, no, I want it all. And it was so difficult to get him down, but but he wanted to be baptized. See, it's just, that's what happened. Sprinkling um, is, is primarily a infant baptism, and that's not really a baptism at all. To be baptized, one must assent of their own free will to live their life for Jesus Christ. You can't do that as an infant. Uh, It's one of the real problems with the Roman Catholic Church, of course. Here is a question from David. And he says, uh, Pastor, what do you think is the biggest obstacle in the church preventing revival? Um, David, you remember the first question, I think not the first question, but one of the first questions on the program today was from, from the, the woman named Brenda. I heard a boyfriend having sex, but they called themselves a Christian. I think that's it. Not Brenda, but the idea that we can do what we want to do and somehow be acceptable to God. You know, when we live the life the way we want to live it, while claiming Christ, what do you think God's reaction is? Uh, as many of you know, I just started on Wednesday nights the book of Isaiah. And in our very first study, we only did 17 verses, but in our very first study, God said, you know, what are these religious rituals and what are these feasts that you're celebrating? Uh, my soul hates those things. Why weary me with this trampling of my courts? There were religious people who are doing bad things. Sin, worshiping other gods, um, worshiping God, but but worshiping other gods, which is really not worshiping the real God at all. God says, when you spread your hands out in prayer, I won't hear you. And David 
just that prevailing attitude is the biggest obstacle. Like, holiness doesn't matter. If a revival is going to begin in the church, then it's have to, it has to be empowered by holiness. And then a revival, by definition, is winning people to Christ. And then the church will be empowered through their personal holiness to do that. Our message will have power. And now, David, we live in a time where people can think they can live together and not be married. They think they can smoke marijuana and everything is going to be okay. God understands. Or we can get drunk or party. or uh, You know, if you want revival, then we have to be serious about Jesus. And the only way to do that is to give our all to him, holding nothing back. Remember, David, this, that service to God is by definition a sacrifice. That means we have to say no to us so we can say yes to him. There's no saying yes to God and yes to us. Jesus said to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, deny what you want to do, pick up your cross every day, and follow him. To pick up our cross means to die daily and follow him. And there won't be a revival without a return to holiness. So, David, I hope that helps. Let's go to Celia from Bandera, Texas, on line one. Celia, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking the call. You Uh have answered this question. Can you hear me, sir? I can, very well. Okay. You answered this question about two months ago, but I got in on the tail end of it, and it was regarding the devotional book, Jesus is Calling, and you were against, well, you didn't think this was a the proper devotional book, and I don't, yes. and, and I didn't remember, I couldn't, I, you'd already said why, <laughs> And I have yes. that book, and a lot of the ladies that I go to Bible study with have it. <laughs> and so I'd like, if you don't mind repeating your answer, and that way I can inform the ladies that I I can I, I can do that, with. Celia. I can do that. Thank you. And and uh, if if anybody wants more specific information on it, the book is Jesus Calling, not Jesus is Calling. It's Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Okay. And yeah, and uh, if anybody wants specific information, all they have to do is email us at the questions at Calvary SA, and we'll make sure the information gets out to them. But uh, quickly, uh, Celia, the 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 book is um, one person's, um, and I'm going to use harsh terms here: dismissal of Scripture in favor of Jesus wanting a more intimate relationship. Uh, her whole premise of the book is that that um, um, God wants a more intimate relationship with each and every one of us that then we can get in the Bible. And so what what was revealed to her, and she claims this is divine revelation, is that Jesus comes to her, Jesus calls to her apart from the Word, and she equates those visions, words, whatever you want to call them, um, she puts him basically on the same level that we understand Scripture is. This is God speaking. And as she goes through the different um, things that Jesus has said, she's saying, this is me speaking for God to you. Now, obviously, I I don't know this woman. And I, uh, I've i looked at the book, um, not completely, but I've, I've looked at some of the visions in detail. And... Uh, I honestly think that her heart is okay. It's just that her doctrine, her theology is so off. And I don't just dislike the book. I, I, I would, if I could just make it happen, I'd ban every book uh, out there. Because what, what she's doing, and this is a, a book that is almost exclusively bought by and for women. And and it gives you goosebumps. It you get emotional, and you start seeking Jesus 
outside of the Word of God, giving the things that you hear the Spirit say to you, or what you think is the Holy Spirit saying to you, or Jesus speaking to you, uh, you give those the same weight or even greater weight than the Word of God, and that's simply not possible. It's something, Celia, that that is very, very dangerous. That's why in First John chapter four, verse one, John says, uh, "Brothers." Uh, not every spirit is from God. Test the spirits. And the way we test the things that we hear in what we would call the spirit realm, uh, the way we test that is against the word of God. And there are just too many of those Jesus calling moments that are in contradiction to what the word says. And if anybody out there in this listening audience thinks that they need a more intimate relationship than you can get reading, for instance, the book of Romans or reading Philippians chapter 2 or reading the Gospels, then you don't understand um, the relationship that we're to have with our Bibles at all. So, Celia, that's my problem with it. It's too subjective. It sometimes uh, is disproportionate in terms of, of comparing to what the Bible says. And our feelings, our emotions are so unreliable. And I think the one thing that we all have to be uh, humble enough to admit is that every single Christian has thought they heard something from God that turned out not to be from God. And uh, Jesus calling by this uh, this woman. Again, I'm not judging her heart. Uh, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure she's saved. Uh, but this is a dangerous book and people are falling um, uh, because of it. So that's my my position. Thank you, Celia. I appreciate your persistence in the call. Thank you very much. Okay. Let's go now to New Braunfels, Texas, and talk with Naomi. Naomi, you've been holding for a while. Thank you for your patience. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. You sound great. Are you feeling better? I am uh, probably 90% better, so yes, I am. Thank you. Well, good. Hey, I have three questions on fasting. First, I want to know what your position is on Christian fasting. And then, second, does God actually call Christians to fast? And then third, how do you know when you're being called to a fast by God? And I will take your answer over the air. Thank you, Naomi. Appreciate it very much. Um Oh, Christian fasting. I, I, don't, I really don't like answering this question because uh, people think it sounds so unspiritual. Um, fasting is not a New Testament concept. Um, it is an Old Testament concept. It was always associated with prayer. And the idea was that they would fast to seek the protection of God or fast to seek uh, the approval of God and the forgiveness of God. Uh, we already have all of that. We already have all of that. Uh, Naomi, Isaiah 58 is the ultimate chapter on fasting in your Bibles. That's what fasting was intended by God in the Old Testament to be, and the people misunderstood it. Here's the problem. We think if I go hungry, God then has to answer my prayer. If I go hungry, if I deprive myself of something, then God's going to be especially proud of me. Um, Lent is the same kind of thing. I'm going to give up something that's not good for me for 40 days, and God will be proud of me. Um, it, it's it's simply not a New Testament concept. The only time it's mentioned, it's mentioned by Jesus. And in his case, his ministry was completely Jewish. His ministry was to Jews, and he was under the law. Uh, you and I, we no longer have to fast Because the Spirit of God lives in us. Jesus ever lives, Hebrews 7 says, to make intercession for us. Now, does God ever call someone to fast? I have no doubt that sometimes he would, but I don't think we understand that call. Um, God asks us to fast when he tells us to deny our flesh. He asks us to, fla- to, to, to fast when he says to flee from sexual immorality to change the way we talk. But to deprive ourselves of food is not a New Testament concept at all. Um, And so I I, I trust, Naomi, that that answers the question. Uh, If somebody is fasting, 
and their purpose is to hear from God on an important issue, um, then I would have no quarrel with that. Um, Fasting, denying flesh, is another one of those symbols like baptism or circumcision in the Old Testament. Um, but, but, But it doesn't move the heart of God to answer our prayers. What moves the heart of God is a heart that is repentant, right with God, a heart that wants to honor God. That's the heart that moves the hand of God in prayer. And I, I just, what I see, Naomi, way, way, way too often is this sort of Western concept, well, if I do something then I can make God change his mind. Or if I do something, then God has to do something for me. And it's almost like we're, we who are born again by grace are trying to walk with Jesus by works. So again, not everybody's motive is that. So if I would say that if somebody feels called to fast, their motive is to honor the Lord, to hear something from the Lord, um, so they can surrender something to the Lord, then then uh, I, I wouldn't have a quarrel with that. But just the idea of fasting, if you read Isaiah 58, Naomi, I am confident you'll get the heart of God on fasting. I appreciate that, Naomi. Thank you. Now let me also say this. Uh, I'm not saying, I didn't just say that everybody who's fasting is doing it for the wrong reason. Um, I just think we need to be better students of our Bibles. Fasting is a lot like tithing. Um, If you do it, it needs to be a free will offering with no strings attached. If you give to God, it's a free will offering with no strings attached. Should we give to God? Of course we should. Should we deny ourselves? Uh, Yes, Jesus said to do that. So is that given to us in the epistles? But fasting to get God to do something for us I think is unproductive and doesn't move the heart of God, the hand of God at all. Thank you, Naomi. Appreciate it. Here is a question from Andy. I like this question. He says, will prophets and apostles reappear in the very last days of the church? Uh, Andy, I'm going to be real specific because I'm not exactly sure what you mean. So um, um, in the last days, after the rapture of the church, yes, there will be prophets. Will there be apostles? 144,000 of them. Uh, the the, the 144,000 witnesses who are sealed by God. Remember the word apostle means messenger, but not in the sense that Paul was an apostle or Peter was an apostle or James or John were apostles. Uh, there will be many prophets. The, the two prophets uh, um, um, Moses and Elijah, um, the witnesses will be prophets uh, as well. Um, God's Spirit will be very active in leading the greatest revival in the history of the world. But there will never again in the life of the church be prophets or apostles. Ephesians 2 is very clear for anybody who will just look at it and study the language. The foundation of the church, according to Ephesians 2, has already been laid. That foundation is identified for us. The apostles and the prophets with Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. That's the foundation that we read about in the book of Acts. The apostles and the prophets were were the, the... People didn't have the word of God then, so the word of God came orally. Philip's four daughters were prophetesses. Agabus was a prophet. All of the writers of our New Testament were prophets. We know who the apostles were. They will never again appear in that office in that same manner. However, in these last days, I think especially as we get closer to the return of Christ, Andy, there will be the gift of prophecy that will abound. Now, having the gift of prophecy does not make one a prophet or prophetess. The gift of prophecy is to encourage, to strengthen, to edify the body. And I think there's a lot of prophetic-type 
things being said now which ought to encourage us. But in the very last days of the church, the answer is no. After the church is raptured in the last seven years, we call that the Great Tribulation, then yes, Andy, there will be prophets and apostles. And, uh, you know, I tell our church all the time, especially when I'm teaching the book of Revelation, that uh, it's so exciting. What's going to happen in the last seven years, the Great Tribulation, is so exciting that I almost wish I could be there to be a part of it. Hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Andy, I appreciate that. Here is a question from Jeremiah. Oh, speaking of prophecy, Jeremiah said, I was looking on your website for prophecy updates and didn't find any. Uh, do you not believe in prophecy? Uh, Jeremiah, we believe in prophecy a lot. Uh, the prophecies that have been fulfilled already uh, which are probably, I'm going to throw out a, an about number, 95% of all the biblical prophecies have been fulfilled exactly, exactly as they were declared. That means we can reasonably assume that the 5% of unfulfilled prophecies, all of them returning to the second, or referring to the second coming of Christ, uh, they too will be fulfilled exactly as predicted. Um, I don't do prophecy updates um, because I just don't think there's any value in me talking about Israel being back in the homeland. Uh, you know, we've been basically as a church talking about that since 1948. We got a little bit of, of uh, ammunition. So we got a little bit of ammunition uh, in 1967 and again in 1973 with the, 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 the unlikely victories of Israel in the war. Um, uh, Jesus, remember wasn't talking to or let me rephrase wasn't talking about the church in the Olivet Discourse he was talking about Israel and yes we all know that when you see Israel again in their homeland then it's a sign that the end is near but prophecy updates are not nearly as valuable Jeremy as simply teaching the Bible Verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, uh, as you know, Jeremy and probably or Jeremiah, I'm sorry. Uh, this is uh, um, sort of a Calvary Chapel thing. Uh, a lot of my uh, pastor friends um, are big on having prophecy updates. Uh, they say it gets their people excited about return the, the return of Jesus. Um, boy, if you come to Calvary Chapel, Jeremiah. You'd see a whole bunch of people excited about the return of Jesus without me trying to stoke the fires. So uh, it's just not something that I personally find uh, beneficial. Now, obviously, when we're studying those prophecies, uh, I talk about those things a lot. And that's one of the beauties about going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. Uh, I don't have to do topical studies. I'm going to get to it all at some point. So I hope that helps. Here's a question from Ronald, my namesake. Why do some people who reject God live great lives? You know, Ronald, doesn't it just get on your last nerve? Here's the real truth. And I'm speaking from personal experience. When I was in business, when I was wildly successful, it would look to all the world like I lived a great life. Had a family looks like the pictures came out of the, the wallet that you bought at the department store. Um, beautiful wife, beautiful kids. Had a great job, made more money than I could spend. And everybody would look at our life and say, boy, that's just about perfect. Truth is, I was dying inside. I was dying inside. Because people who reject God are dying literally. Physically and spiritually. We're good actors, we're great pretenders, but that explains all of the wealthy people, the famous people that we read about in the newspapers who commit suicide. It's an amazing thing. People seem to have everything and we read about them killing themselves. And the reason is because they weren't living great lives, they were living empty lives. Asaph in Psalm 73 
he wrote this. He said, Surely God is good to Israel. But as for me, my feet almost slipped when I envied the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, he looked around and saw wicked men living what appeared to be great lives. And it almost caused him to stumble. He had the same question, Ronald, that you asked. It's just not fair. Why are Christians sometimes just barely getting by? And it looks like all these people that don't want anything to do with God and actually flaunt their hatred for God. Why do they get all the money? Well, Ronald, one of the ways to look at this is that the things that they get in this life are the only rewards they're ever going to get. When they die, they're going to spend eternity being tormented. When you die, Ronald, when I die, life is just beginning. So we live a rich, abundant life now, not materially rich necessarily, but we live an abundant, passionate, purposeful life now. And when we die, the best is yet to come. Infinitely so, the best is yet to come. So if we understand that, don't let anybody convince you that apart from Jesus Christ, they're all, they're, they're doing fine. They have moments of fun. They got money to spend. Maybe they're in a position of authority over you. But make no mistake, inside they're dying and the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of their hearts and he's not going to let them go to hell without putting up a fight. And it is impossible to fight God. We're always going to lose. So don't look out at other people, Ronald. Look up instead at Jesus. Again, that's personal experience. And 28 years ago in February, I gave my life to Jesus and everything changed. Hey, thank you for the questions. Thanks for the calls. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.